Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, and this episode is part of our series on the future of health. Today, we're talking digital health and therapeutics. I am so excited to be joined by Susa Monicelli. She's the general manager of Propeller Health, which is a precision digital health company. Susa's brings her deep expertise and insights from the frontier of digital therapeutics. Welcome, Susa. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm excited to start the conversation. Susa, let's start broad for a second with digital health. So we hear this term a lot. We know there's a lot of progress being made across multiple dimensions. Can you talk a little bit about where we are in really capturing the needs and potentials of digital health and, of course, in particular, digital therapeutics? That is a broad question. You weren't kidding. I like starting with the consumer and kind of the consumer readiness side of it, because at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do with digital therapeutics, um, whether it's inclusive of uh, and digital health more broadly, but whether it's inclusive of devices or whether it's purely a digital solution, what we're really in the business of doing is changing behavior. And and that is in an effort to drive a different outcome for the patient and for the health system more broadly. So we're really looking to try to change the trajectory of somebody's clinical well-being and their financial well-being or their quality of life. And that change comes about through these kinds of digital solutions and mediums which we're used to using in other aspects of our everyday life as it is. And so it feels a little bit like the healthcare industry is just starting to play a little bit of catch up as the market is moving so quickly. Propeller is unique. It plays at the intersection of pharma, payer, and provider. So, Susan, what have been some of the insights you've had with respect to how we can successfully enable digital health technology among these players? I think the challenging thing with digital therapeutics has been figuring out who pays for it. And, and who, who, who gets to garner the value of what a digital therapeutic solves for. And what's really unique for us at Propeller is that when we are ultimately working with the patient to change those outcomes, everyone along the value chain benefits, whether it's from a pharmaceutical company's perspective on adherence or potentially differentiation in the market for their product, whether it's for health system clinicians having the ability to access information about their patients outside of the clinical visit and having transparency, frankly, to how well a patient is responding to a medication, which is hard to assess if you don't really know whether they're adherent or not or whether they're taking it on time in the right way and using the right technique. And then ultimately, the payers who are looking for, for those positive signals and, and bending the cost curve so that they can afford to provide broader coverage for more people these digital therapeutics really offer a means of um, creating that better outcome for the patient, which ultimately hopefully keeps them out of the hospital or shortens their hospital stays and certainly prevents readmissions. And so all of those levers, when we look at it from a propeller's perspective in particular, we're really excited that there's an opportunity for each kind of entity to gain value, but especially for the patient. And they all really do need to come together. It's amazing what it takes to actually drive the kinds of outcomes you're talking about. And then you get it all set up, but you still need the consumer to actually change their behavior in ways that allow the technology to actually help them achieve those outcomes. How, how's that been working? Have you have you found consumers and the technologies you've been involved in uh, adhering and, and actually seeing the value? I think the value is for each patient when they actually create that aha moment and they get used to their new habits that are helping them get to those better outcomes. And what I mean by that is that for each of us, that looks like something different. So there's 
people who may use a digital tool for a month or two months, they get the hang of it. And now they're on a completely different trajectory for their health because they, they got what the support that they needed. There are other individuals who wax and wane. Often that can be driven by stress in their lives or complexity of their other things that are impacting them from their job or their family circumstances. And so you see some people engaging with the digital therapeutic for a period of time, and then they kind of hold steady on their own, and then they start to relapse again. And that's when you want to be there to support them and pick them back up again and give them that surround sound, encouraging them to continue to maintain those, those behavior changes. And then you have the third part of it, which is there are some people who just need continual support. And so what's interesting about this digital therapeutics is that the more data that we have and the more insights that we have about our patients, the better we're able to identify who needs what to be successful. I love that because there, there, at the end of the day, there is nothing more personal than health. And we are very individual in our nature and in how we lean into our health. In our, in our Future of Health study, actually, this year, we did see an increase in the total population that really wants to be more engaged in their health. You know, 50% of the population wants even a bigger role than they have today. Um, and, you know, 75% believe that digital technologies, you know, wearables, other things uh, are part of that solution. So there's definitely belief, but I, I can see what you're saying about it really comes down to who you are and how you can adopt those habits and, and maintain them. And I think it also comes down to who do you trust? So there's so many sources of information in the market for as a patient who is struggling to figure out how to navigate their condition, in our case, asthma or COPD. And you have multiple sources. I mean, it's one moment when you get diagnosed. A lot of people, when they receive a diagnosis, anything that the caregiver says after that just goes right in, right in through one ear and out the other. It's hard to retain that information in the moment. And then it becomes about the resources that they have available. And people have very different resources available to them um, in different points in time. And so I think that when, when we look at this entire kind of journey and that ability for patients to sustain engagement, they want, you want to have sustained engagement and you want to have it with a trusted source, something that you know, hey, the information I'm getting is relevant and true to me. So that idea of digital health being able to deliver tailored experiences that have been configured for me as a person but also knowing that the foundational sources are grounded in, in kind of that true wellness and health and, and medicine um, so that you know that the actions that you're taking are actually driving the right right outcome. That's a great point. It actually reminds me, uh, you know, we've, we've investigated a lot about trust and it is the provider and their organizations that consumers tend to trust the most when it comes to health. But from the work I've done, I've spoken to a number of physicians that are struggling to understand what is even out there from a digital health perspective and, and how should they even be aware of all the different options, especially as you start thinking about in competitive markets where more than one company might be trying to play with a digital health tool or a digital health. You know, and, and so I think there's still a learning curve for even the providers who would be able to enable this and provide that trust for a patient. Do you Do you agree? I do, and I think there's a lot of barriers to it, too. So when I worked on the payer side, I, I spent about 10 years at Blue Cross Blue Shield, and we saw so many companies emerging. There was so much heavy investment being made in the industry that you could almost meet with 50 companies every month and not get through all of the potential um, digital solutions that you could offer to your patient population. And so 
the noise level on how many solutions there are, which ones are efficacious and are truly working for the patients and creating that different outcome. It's really difficult to tell. And so that feeling of, oh my goodness, there's just too many choices to be made, too much investigation to be done. And as a provider, you're already working, working hard and it's hard to find that time and capacity. And so many may choose to sit back and just wait for these solutions to get reimbursed. And that slows down the adoption and potential opportunity to really ha get these solutions to patients quickly. And I think the other thing is that, and you and I've talked about this before, but is the burden of, of data. And there's so much data out in the marketplace now, but it really needs to be made into actionable data, into the insights that whether it's a clinician or the patient, it needs to be there when they are able to receive it and needs to be in the right format to be able to utilize it and it needs to be accessible. And I think those are some of the complexities that also complicate the, the ability to bring these kinds of digital solutions forward. Absolutely. There's absolutely data overload and you see it in cardiology and oncology and PCPs that, um, you know, when we get more personalized data about a patient, there's not yet the standards. There's not yet that ability to translate it into action in a way that supports the rest of how they're making their decisions. That, so let's let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the life cycle of getting a digital therapeutic to market. First of all, I think for our audience, it'd be great to if you could explain a little bit more about the technology that Propeller Health has, um, just as an example um, of what's already out there and, and how it's working. Yeah, so, you know, Propeller has been in business. We're actually coming up on our 13-year 13, 13 celebration here. Congratulations. We're excited about it. But, you know, the device itself is... Um, one of the key things is is the solution is encompassing of four critical components. And, and this goes to a little bit of the complexity that we were just talking about it for providers, but you have a sensor. In our case, it's a sensor that gets put on an inhaler um, and it works in a passive capacity, meaning that the patient doesn't have to take an extra action to, to press anything new or different than what they would do if they were just using the inhaler regularly. But then that gets combined into software. Typically, people think of digital solutions as being app-based experiences. Propeller has discovered, and partially because of the demographics of our population, that it's important to reach the patient where they're at. So a lot of folks choose not to download as many apps these days on their phones because it's just overwhelming. Some use web app, web application, mobile app, mobile web to access their, their accounts. And other people opt in for an appless experience, meaning that they can have a digital hub in their home that their sensor connects to, and then that sing sends a signal to their caregiver or their provider. And so that way, if you're, for example, an older COPD patient may opt out of wanting to use an app and instead just provide the information to their caregiver, son or daughter who, who cares about their care or provides that signal to the provider. And that brings me to the next part of it, which is the integration with providers. And this is really important because it can be challenging if you're adding work on to providers um, with these types of solutions. So you want to be where the provider is at. And we've at Propeller done this two different ways because we had to solve for different kinds of health systems that people participate in. If you're a smaller physician group, you probably don't have the need to integrate something like this or the resources to integrate and maintain 
a digital solution on the way that your office is run. So we provide a portal, in that case, a clinician portal that they can access the patient data. Well, if you're a larger health system um, like Common Spirit, we've done a Cerner integration with them where we've actually integrated into the physician flow. And, and that is, makes it easier for the physician to get the information when they need it in that patient, um, patient journey with them. And then you have kind of the last piece of it, which is the analytics. And this is probably what a lot of people think is, is kind of the core of digital health, but it's the idea of getting all of these data points, but being able to use them into actionable insights that either go into the clinical portal, change the way the patient journey goes or allows for that personal tailoring of information for that patient. And for us, we've discovered that our patients are very different depending on where they are in their journey. They could just be newly diagnosed and the questions that they have and, and how to use an inhaler, how to use a digital solution may be very different than a patient who's been trying to manage their condition for the last three, four years. What they need to be motivated is very different. And these types of digital solutions like Propeller, we can tailor those experiences to those patients to help support them better. That is a lot of seamless integration. That's a lot of things to think about in terms of having a technological solution that can still scale for personalization in how it's how it's then delivered and understood and used. Um, you know, many life sciences companies have been investing in, experimenting with, or even considering, you know, digital health technology, building it internally, partnering externally. I guess before we even get to how, in your experience, what are some foundational questions or considerations that, you know, life sciences needs to ask themselves if they're going to go down this path? I think the first thing is, is really understanding what is it that you're looking to do? If you're just looking to pilot or innovate for a digital shop, that's a very different experience than if your intent is to do a digitally connected, commercially available product and, and have it be distributed through pharmacies, having it be FDA approved in the process of getting the drug approval, approval done. And so it's a little bit of that endpoint of where are you as a company in terms of that journey? And how do you wanna think about that investment? And once you've answered that question and, and, and started to say, okay, now I know, there's almost two or three different ways that you can think about creating that value. So if you're truly looking to commercialize it and whether it's embedded in the medication, so in our injectable devices, for example, we can embed the, the sensor in there so it's seamless for the patient. Um, or it can be a companion product where you can sell it in a similar packaging when you, they go pick up their first prescription or they can buy them. They, it can be um, something that is added on after the patient has received the medication. There are many different options for that delivery. And that goes a little bit to that intent of what are you looking to do with it. And I think the last thing that I would say is that, you know, a lot of our farmer clients, they, they, their view or life sciences clients is that their view is we're experts and knowing how to bring medications to market. We're not experts in this kind of technology and we don't necessarily have the connectivity or the, the ex desire for expanding into the business of connectivity and being connected to hospitals and health systems. And some of the barriers that exist there that they consider is that for one patient, they may be on multiple medications across multiple 
uh, life sciences companies. And that presents a challenge in getting a comprehensive view on the patient. So these are just some of the nuggets or things that come up in conversation about, is this a core capability you want to build within the company? Or is this something that you want to partner and be part of these broader ecosystems in a partnership arrangement? And how do those levers, levers work? But answering some of those questions may come through experimentation. And, and so it, I think for me, most of the pharma life sciences companies who are doing digital solutions, it, it's been a journey, not a destination. I think you're spot on. And I think another a number of them that may have experimented early in-house have come to the conclusion that partnership probably is best because, you know, it is a very different competency in the development and in some of the pull-through, as you mentioned. So let's say uh, I'm biopharma leader. I'm looking to partner with someone on, on a potential digital therapeutic. What are some of the important questions and considerations that they should weigh in choosing a digital health partner? This is perhaps selfish uh, of me to say, <laughs> so, but I, uh, I'm through it. In true candor, having been on the payer side, one of the concerns that I always had when I was partnering with digital companies that were just emerging was whether they had the ability to be around in two or three years. Hmm. A lot of investment to make into that partnership. And, and we're very fortunate at Propeller. We're a ResMed company now. And, um, and so we're part of a much larger corporation and, and have that kind of sustainable roadmap. We've also been around for 13 years. But that experience base is often with these kinds of new solutions that are coming into market. And it's always the yin and yang. You want to support the new up-and-comers, but then at the same time, you want to have some certainty. And so personally, my recommendation, and this is just from my viewpoint, is that think about the experience level. And in some cases, You'll want to take risks and you want to do something very innovative and different. And that usually means partnering with someone who's newer. Um, and in other cases, you may want to start working first with a company who's done this multiple times and knows how to navigate the go-to-market approach. Um, and anywhere from dealing with challenges and distribution and packaging and kind of all the operational components that are really important behind the scenes in making something like this come to life. So that would be one consideration. I think the other is... Um, other considerations that come up is, uh, what do you want to do with the information? People are so hungry for data these days, but knowing what is the purpose of the data that you're seeking to get and how will it help your business grow would be another. And 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 how do you kind of partner with this new new um, relationship around that data piece? Um, it's my favorite partnerships have been the ones where people really know their data, understand it and are able to help guide me in better understanding how I can use that data for my purposes. Um, and that's a lot of the conversations that we have brought Propeller end up having with our, our life sciences partners is really working more in cohort and helping to inform some of those decisions. So I would look for someone who has that kind of data maturity um, and understanding on that trend as well. Sounds like data maturity also sounds like an ability to see down the road and help kind of craft out the outcomes you're looking for in a, as you build. Um, that sounds like, what are some blind spots of going with someone with more experience? I think that you don't know what you don't know. And so even with somebody who is experienced, you don't really know, but well, how did they come about with that experience? And is, is the guidance that they're giving you the right guidance? Um, I think those types of things are, are good questions to ask and push on. Uh, and I do think that um, more experienced companies, they tend to have um, have grown 
And so perhaps they, they're more rigorous in some of their regulatory and privacy and consent processes. And that's often where you can, you can really have to roll up the sleeves and both parties have to do a lot of work to get around some of that, but, um, or get through it in the right way rather. But I think that, um, other than that, I don't really know if there are that much downside of going with someone new. I mean, I think it's if depending on what you're solving for, if it's something completely innovative that no one's ever done before, those are breakthrough innovations and there's a re risk and a reward that goes with that and vice versa, going with somebody who's been around for a while, there, there is some certainty, but maybe it isn't as breakthrough as a result. So I think the space is moving so fast and even for us with the new kinds of devices that we have coming out and injectables and blister packs and those types of things. I still feel like we're growing hand over fist and taking on new challenges every day with our partners. Absolutely. It's a it's an ever-changing space. Now, okay, so I'm Biopharma. I've selected a partner, but you and I both know that, um, you know, there's a lot of set processes and ways of doing things and ways of thinking about things that come with a very compliance-rich legacy of kind of innovation that Biopharma has done. So, Talk to me about, from your experience, the internal challenges you've observed Biopharma face that can stall their potential for actually achieving what they set out to uh, with a partner on their digital therapeutic. I think um, when you decide to do something different, it always requires that you're kind of taking on more risk and putting your neck out there. And I think that there are ways to mitigate the risk and there's ways to make sure that not only your your own department, but the other broader stakeholders within the pharma groups understand and can participate in those discussions. And um, and you do them in a way where you're inclusive, but you're also determined to get to an outcome. I think some of these conversations stall because you get to these, what I call kind of endless possibility conversations. Well, we could do it with this drug, or we could do it with that drug, or maybe we should start over here. Well, what do you think? And then the conversation ends up stalling and, and, and thinking about all the possibilities and ways that you can engage. I found that there's usually a simple solution, which is look for where you can have the impact. Um, and in going back through to what's the purpose of this? Is it an experiment? Is it with the intent that you want to truly differentiate your product commercially? Is it a, a way of really bringing your medication your medication to the right patient at the right time. So we have a lot of conversations around, for example, um, using inhalers and being able to identify the patients for whom the inhalers are not working so that we can escalate the right patients to a biologic at the earlier. And those types of opportunities, I think, when you're that clear about your intent, a lot of these other considerations tend to melt away and, and they just become things that you solve for. That's a, it's a really great point because um, it's in clarity and in the intent that you're going to achieve the outcomes. What about the inertia and, and the talent and the, any, any considerations leaders need to have to clear the path for this to be successful once you, once you choose the place to play? One of the biggest things is that, and this is true for any industry, that, you know, um, in most companies that I work for that are more mature, you have a lot of confidence on what levers to pull. So let's say that you want to get X percent more market share. You're pretty confident. You know how much more ad money you got to put against it to gain that market share. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's kind of a simple example of it. When you're looking at something like a digital therapeutic and you're using it to differentiate your medication and the experience your patients have, that's an unknown. 
you don't really know what you're going to get. And so for leadership teams, I think it's providing that air cover and confidence for their teams that these are risks that are worth taking. I think that for me personally, and this is getting way into the future, but I wouldn't be surprised if most medications on some level are going to end up being connected because of the value. Let's say we're talking 20 years down the line, but especially the more expensive the medications are, the more there is consideration given on are they, is there adherence to that medication and is it providing the value to the patient? And without knowing whether a patient is adherent or not, it's really difficult to tell whether the drug is working or not. And so this provides that visibility to clinicians. I think the other one is, is that, you know, some of the other categories that we're starting to work in, for example, Alzheimer's, having, having a caregiver know whether somebody remembered to take their medication. I have trouble sometimes remembering to take my, you know, antibiotic, right? Yep. <laughs> and I have household members who remind me kindly, but you know, what if antibiotics or what if some complex medications where you have to be really precise about taking it in a specific order, taking this colored pill on, you know, in the morning, this colored pill at noon, this colored pill at night, having a blister pack and knowing that the patient took the right medication or sends an alert if a patient took the wrong medication, those are really valuable. Um, and there's a third kind of interesting bucket that kind of falls into this innovation piece. But for us, in terms of, for example, biologics, you want to know whether it's spoiled on the way to the patient. They have to be highly temperature controlled. And if you have an indicator light that tells you that, hey, this this got too warm in transit, it's no good anymore. Those are safety and efficacy issues. And so there is a lot to solve for um, in, in, in this this land, but it comes down to, again, kind of what's most important to each, each, each client. I, I love that you went there. We are here talking about the future of health, and I agree with you. I think most things will be connected. I was with the wholesaler last year who was talking about you know, how do we do just that? How do we put sensors on our on our cold storage shipments, for example, to make sure that nothing ever happens in that direction, right? So I do see endless possibilities here. And, and I think as we in biopharma consider how we're playing across the patient journey, not just at the moment of Rx, but, but truly across. You talked about other things today. You know, can we shrink the time between therapies, you know, when we, when we can acknowledge and see that they're ready to the next step for a biologic, for example? Um, you know, how can we how can we help earlier with knowing that compliance is off and potentially, you know, uh, get them on therapy quicker? So I think there's there's so many things that this can do. And I, I agree that it should be a major goal. I think, uh, you know, those who are willing to take that risk and provide that air cover, you know, there's an opportunity for category leadership, too. So I guess one thing that I do hear um, concern about, because this is a general concern across the industry now, is the regulatory and the policy environment overall around uh, innovation, um, you know, and of course, then the pricing of innovation, et cetera. You've had your payer hat on a couple of times in this conversation. So tell me a little bit about how digital health is faring uh, as we consider global regulatory and, and policy and pricing. One, obviously COVID, everyone talks about how COVID accelerated everything. Um, but I think that what we don't talk about is how COVID allowed for experimentation. And what I'm hopeful is that it created an opportunity where we lifted some of that regulation and opened ourselves up for more of these kinds of remote solutions in particular. It allowed for people to start innovating in that space and moving more quickly and find things that could work and could really create a benefit. And we can talk a little bit about health equity too and how that plays into this, but 
But specifically, that to me is actually an important nugget that often gets missed in conversation. And what I'm hopeful as we move and start to take some of the positives of what we've learned and adding those into our regulatory environment, that we also pick up on this lesson learned about being able to open up and allow for some of this rapid evolution to happen. And I hope we continue to embrace those those types of moments um, moving forward. Um, so that to me is one aspect of it. The second is the second one that I just want to highlight, and probably because I personally feel really passionate about reimbursement. Um, and and to me, this is this comes down to access to care, and and that can be interpreted in many ways. Access can mean um, having it be something that you can go to. It can be something that you can get to remotely, but it can also be innovation. And sometimes it takes us a long time. We know something's working, but because there's no reimbursement pathway, we actually can't get access to it because it's not affordable. And the challenge that we have in particular in the U.S. is that the channels that we have to do reimbursement, especially at scale, are still very CPT code dependent. And that adds a complexity that we haven't really found yet that right balance. We're looking for it with remote physiologic uh, monitoring codes as well as remote therapeutic codes, but we're not quite yet there. This is an, a, a step in the right direction and we're starting to innovate again. And my hope is that we continue to push on these boundaries because there's a lot of great things about the systems as they exist. We often are ready to kind of poke at it as they hear the holes. But um, but I don't think that we have found yet that right lever for digital therapeutics and how they fit into this equation. I, I think you're right. I think that the more success cases we can get through to and, and show the benefit, then, you know, the, the pathways start to open into, into better negotiation as well. So I, I think uh, I hope we will get there. I think patients need it. And you opened the door to talk about equity. So let's let's do that. You know, I, I think you can't have a conversation about the future of health without thinking this way. And, you know, we've had conversations on every dimension, right? Clinical trials, um, you know, and participation representative in clinical trials. We've had conversations around access. You know, when you think about connected care overall, yes, sometimes it's cost. Sometimes it's literally physical access to the technology, right? Um, so Tell me about how you're seeing equity and, and reaching a balanced population uh, with digital therapeutics. Let me answer it in two ways. One on the clinical trial side, because I, I am really excited to see this happening. Um, and not only as a woman, but uh, but also a, as somebody who, who lives in a really diverse ecosystem of family members and, and friends. And I think that being able to do more clinical trials remotely it was one of those experiments that I just mentioned in terms of COVID, but I think there's a much more willingness to do that. And I think digital therapeutics are the forefront of being able to enable that, just like wearables and other kind of mechanisms that allow us to be able to recruit from more diverse communities, more global communities into, into our clinical studies. So I'm personally thrilled to see the advancements that are, that are taking place there. On the commercial side, when we think about equity, and, and think about access to care, it starts on many different levels. And one of it is just even knowing what's available to you and what's affordable to you, as you mentioned. And, you know, Propeller, because we work with patients who have asthma and COPD, they tend to come, um, we tend to serve a very broad range of our community, but we have a lot of Medicaid and Medicare patients. 
that that we support. And in my view, being able to make these types of solutions and having the ability to do remote monitoring, having the ability to collect information so that you can better tailor, whether it's education materials. We talked a lot about tailoring earlier in the conversation. But, you know, when you're receiving information and you're getting it from someone who looks and feels like you, it becomes easier to connect with that information that you're being given. Digital allows us to take away some of the barriers that exist. You can use someone's um, education level and you can tailor the content at the right level for the individual to really engage with it. There's so much that we can do, but most importantly, um, being able to take solutions um, that can help communities that don't have all the resources and access, these types of tools enable that to become much easier to do. But you have to do it and meet the patients where they're at. And this is what I was mentioning in terms of, for us, it was a big understanding that we here we are, we're building a digital therapeutic and we go, wait, we need an Apple experience. And, you know, you can just imagine how quiet the room went for a moment. Right? Oh, geez. Realizing that, you know, not every patient is going to want to have an app. Sometimes it's going to be their caregiver, like a parent. When we have our, for our pediatric patients, the parents are the ones who are actually looking at the information to figure out, is their, is their daughter or son actually taking their controller medication on time? Or are they overusing their rescue inhaler for performance enhancement during sporting games? You know, all sorts of little nuggets that you can you can garner from that. But I think the other is is that even having the ability to have that SMS text messaging and being able to have the patient journey through texting, you just open it up to much broader range. But there are other considerations, broadband access, right? And how does that play into the solution? Um, how do you think about um, people who are limiting apps and making sure that they, they're not using, they're not always timing their geolocation on because it drains the battery, for example. How do you work a digital solution around those things? Um, for us, that's geolocation is important, less so because of where the patient is, but for we use it to inform the patient about the, um, the, the kind of environmental risk factors. So depending on the pollen level, for example, when there's a high pollen count, you obviously want to let the patient know so that they remember to bring their rescue inhaler with them, for example. So those are the types of complexities. When you get into the weeds, having an understanding of those factors is important. Yeah, it's a broad range of things to do to dynamically interact in a seamless way with their life. You know, one thing as you were talking that came up, um, you know, we talk a lot about data privacy these days, too. And, you know, especially as we're generating more and more data through things like digital health and therapeutics and um, and wearables, uh, you know, what if what is your thought on on where we are and, and, you know, how do we how do we help? Because there are some patients who are very concerned about this, right? I think that that's exactly what we're seeing. We're we're seeing a really this is one of the challenging things about consumers. Love consumers. And one of the most challenging things is none of us are like the next person in line, uh, right? And we have such a broad range of an audience, people who are extremely concerned about privacy and people who just are don't give two fruits. <laughs> and, and we're trying to service everything in between, right? And so I would say we at Propeller probably take, feel that it is really, really, really important to build a trusted relationship with our patients. And that means taking data privacy seriously. 
And in order to do that, giving patients options and being really transparent with what you are and aren't going to do with the data, I think is a way to earn that trust. Um, and, and so I think that's an important factor and I'd always start with the patient. But similarly, you wanna consider the clinicians and, and they see so many different digital solutions come and go. They're big advocates for the ones that treat their patients respectfully, and, and they appreciate the programs that really think about that entire patient journey and experience. So when you're transferring data from digital solutions into the broader health ecosystem, you have to be a strong steward of that privacy. That's right. I think many patients are willing to engage, and we even see this in biopharma, you know, 42% of, of consumers will say, yes, I trust to engage with the solutions that, that a company like a biopharma is bringing, as long as it is credible, accurate, trustworthy, you know, clear and, and simple. Um, and, and so, you know, all these, all these principles. So if you give the options, if you, if you help them see the, the, what you're doing and why, and then you hold it to your part, then I think, uh, I think we can get there for many of them. I do think that digital therapeutics, it's important to, it's easy to say yes to every bell and whistle there is. It's more important to know which bells and whistles really deliver that difference or that outcome. Absolutely. And to me, that outcome, you, you were kind of alluding to this, but I would I really want to highlight that. People are willing to give more up in their privacy if they really feel that the value is significant. If they feel like they're giving something up, but they're not getting anything in return, then that is diminished value. And it's hard to maintain those types of relationship for a long or period of time. And I, I see that theme in everything you've talked about. So, so you know, from from deciding where and how to, to think about a, a digital therapeutic um, you know, for a patient uh, to, to, to this concept of delivering to them in a way that, you know, reinforces privacy and the outcome. It's, you know, do I have true clarity of what is the outcome I can help them drive and achieve? And can I meet them exactly where they are? Those seem to be the, the things that really drive much of what you're saying. Did I get it right? <laughs> Very nicely and succinctly aggregated up. I think for me, those are the, the reason I probably focus on them is because if you don't have those two things, it's really hard to have a digital solution be successful. Yeah. And, and because you either lose on the engagement front or you haven't made that difference that your solution started off trying to make. So you have to be. So for me, we have with with our some of our patient cohorts, we've reduced the ER visits by 58%. Wow. That is meaningful. But I go back to one other nugget, which is always the patient. You know, when you think about these types of solutions, it's not just the payer who's concerned about the financials. Often, at least when I recently took my daughter to the to the ER for a twisted ankle, you know, the copay portion is pretty hefty. And and you just start to think about how these components come together. That to me is uh is important to remember that for especially since not all of our patients have the same kinds of resources. 20, 30, 50, 100, $250 copays are really meaningful differences in our lives. And and being attuned to that. So when when I see that number, yes, I'm excited for a lot of reasons. It means my patient is in control, but I see that it drives a clinical outcome, a financial outcome, and a quality of life outcome for the patient. 
And that's something that whether you're a life sciences company, whether you're a health system, whether you're a payer, is something that everyone across the board can celebrate. And I'll add to that, uh, you know, the productivity cost, um, but but more importantly, the, em- the emotional outcome. None of us want to be sitting there worried about our family member or our loved one for however many hours we're going to be there. Um, so I, you know, I have life sciences executives listening in. Susa, any last piece of advice you have for them as they're thinking about going on this journey? If they're debating if they should do it or not, I think that the one piece of advice or consideration that I, I, I give to it is that where are we going to be in five to 10 years? And they're going, and, and it's similar to a lot of early adopters, you'll learn so much. When we did our first co-pack in Europe and, and went into market, we learned so much from that experience. And now the, our ability to turn around and really use it for the next and the next and the next those experiences cannot be undersold. And so whether you're ready to jump in with two feet and go full commercial, or whether you're just starting to test this out in clinical studies, take the risk. Whether it's with us or someone else, but take the risk and and start to learn because this, I truly believe this is going to be the direction that we're going to go in the future because there is so much of a positive outcome to every stakeholder, including the patient. I agree with you. Significant part of the future of health. Susa, I'm going to ask you one more question. It's a question I ask all my guests. If you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be? This is from what motivated me to go into healthcare to begin with, which is predict and prevent. We can use a lot of our information and data, and I think digital is has a huge unlocked opportunity to do this which is really like I was talking about the client that, you know, knowing the air quality measures in your area and how that can help predict what type of a day that you're going to have. We are such a reactive healthcare system today and we're designed to respond to acute moments the best. And I think that the more that we can help healthcare really transform into this predictive and preventive model, um, that gets me really, really excited. And it's part of the reason that I'm at Propeller is that I feel like we can really lead the way and lead the way in this area. So that that was my first answer. My other answer that I love also um, would highlight if I had enough time would be a reimbursement. I do believe that um, we need to accelerate the way that we think about reimbursing for care. I do believe that we will in the future be reimbursing care in a more value-based versus transaction modality. And I see small bridges like remote therapeutic codes starting to bridge that gap, but I wish we could accelerate it. I love both of those answers. And I think they're great. And, you know, it it makes me really happy that you're at the helm of helping to drive digital health because I I couldn't agree with them more. Um, And in particular, the predict and prevent, it's... um, it's what health should be. It should be health, not care, right? Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Susa, for joining me today. It's been such a fun conversation. Thank you. I appreciate the time. This has been another episode of Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I invite you to subscribe and leave us a review. And to learn more about ZS's connected health research, visit zs.com slash future of health. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.